Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, my name is Dr. Anna Volkma, and I'm delighted to be your host for this week's show. I'm sure you've heard from me before, but if you're new to our podcast, I'm a research fellow and lecturer at University College London, and I also work clinically as a speech and language therapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, helping people living with dementia and language and communication difficulties. Now, this week's topic is particularly close to my heart. I think I say that every time, (laughs) but it focuses on one of the language-led dementias, namely logopenic variant primary progressive aphasia. And this is a relatively rare disease, often considered an atypical Alzheimer's type dementia, and has only really been recognized in the clinical and research literature fairly recently. Logopenic variant PPA affects specific aspects of a person's ability to understand and communicate words and sentences. And due to its recent conceptualization, there's still a fairly limited understanding about the breadth and behavioural difficulties that people with logopenic variant PPA face. Additionally, our understanding of any appropriate and effective treatments for this condition are very much under development. So this podcast is going to delve deeper into some of these issues in order to understand the history, the nature and the treatments for logopenic variant PPA. So joining me today, I have two experts in the area. Shaz Henderson, another clinical academic speech and language therapist, and Siddharth Ramanan. Welcome to you both. Now, perhaps we could start off with some introductions. So Shaz, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. My name is Shalom Henderson. I go by my nickname, Shaz, and I'm a PhD student at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at the University of Cambridge. Like you mentioned, Anna, I'm also a speech and language pathologist in the US, which is equivalent to speech and language therapist here in the UK. And I've had the privilege of working with many patients and families living with dementia, primarily frontotemporal lobar degeneration and its subtype like primary progressive aphasia at the MGH Frontotemporal Disorders Unit in Boston. Because the topic of today's podcast is very near and dear to my heart as well. I'm very excited to be here today. Super. Thank you very much, Shaz. It's interesting. We say speech and language therapist here, and then they say pathologist in America and pathologist in Australia as well. Um, But now on to Sid. Siddharth, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Siddharth Ramanan. I'm a postdoc um, at the MRC uh, Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at the University of Cambridge. I um, am originally from Bangalore in India, and I uh, recently finished my PhD at the University of Sydney, working with uh, young onset dementia, such as frontotemporal dementia, and um, I did a lot of work on the logopenic variant uh, of primary progressive aphasia. Um, And I moved to the UK um, about five months ago in the midst of the pandemic. But this uh, this topic is, uh, as Shaz said, it's very new and close to my heart because I've done quite a w- lot of work on it and I'm continuing to do some work in my ongoing role. Brilliant. Well, welcome to the UK. I think it's much better when it's not in a pandemic, I'm afraid. So you've yet to see the best of the UK. So Siddharth, could you tell us a bit about the history as of logopenic variant 
PPA. I keep saying PPA, which is short for primary progressive aphasia. But could you just tell us a little bit of the history of logopenic variant PPA as a dementia syndrome? Yeah, so it's really interesting um, because um, before we understand where the logopenic variant of PPA came from, we have to really understand what actually constituted the definition of PPA back in the day and how did the syndrome of PPA come into evolution. Um, in the last about 15 to 20 years, there's been a lot of active research in the field of PPA, but actually focal uh, neurodegenerative disorders of language have been described um, even the, as early as 1892. Um, in fact, there were um, Arnold Pick, uh, who is uh, famously known for uh, their work on Pick's disease, uh, has uh, had had mentioned a few patients uh, who did show a lot of language difficulties, which sort of sort of started out uh, focused on language, but also um, evolved to eventually show a lot of behavior and other generalized cognitive impairment. Um, and in fact, um, there's been a lot of reports in the early 1900s as well of patients showing um, language difficulties, but again, these were not tracked well enough to understand whether the origin was actually just the language impairment per se, or was it language impairment in the context of generalized uh, dementia. Um, but it's not really until the 1980s where Meshulam... He's kind of the guru, he's the star, isn't he, of PPA? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's only in, in the 80s when Mesalam described six cases of a progressively declining language impairment in the absence of fairly, well, in the relative absence of um, other uh, cognitive difficulties, that the concept of PPA actually, uh, I mean, it took got a lot of importance. Um, and I think what's interesting um, about the LVPPA history is that I feel like it, when you track back uh, into the older literature, you learn that it came out of a mixed bag of a mixed PPA uh, syndrome. So it was once Meshulam had described PPAs, there was a lot of work on PPA that started emerging. And I think people um, really were able to understand that there are definitely two types of PPA, which is the semantic variant and the non-fluent variant. These were quite clear. But there were always these other patients who showed a mixture of these difficulties or difficulties that did not fit the criteria for the semantic or the non-fluent variant PPA. Um, and it's only in that mixed bag that um, in about 2004, when uh, the UCSF team led by Mary Lou Gono Tempini uh, found that there's actually a systematic pattern of difficulties, uh, language difficulties in, within that mixed bag of patients. And uh, revisiting some of the old mesulum descriptions, um, I think it's within this mixed bag that the idea of LVPPA came out. Mm. And um, I guess it's worth now, as we started talking about the th there being three different variants, there's this semantic variant, which is where people lose their understanding of word meanings. And then there's the non-fluent variant where people are considered to be um, apraxic. So they have this effortful uh, difficulty in producing and articulating speech and or um, an agrammatism. But 
people with logopenic variant, as Siddharth, you've mentioned, they experience very different uh, difficulties with their language. And I wondered, maybe Shaz, could you explain that in a bit more detail for us? Absolutely. So just adding to what Sid was just describing um, and what you just mentioned, Anna, I think that there are three internationally recognized variants or mm. subtypes of PPA, and one of which is logopenic PPA. And I think that it can be really contrasted by the, uh, from the other variants as well. And just to kind of, you know, highlight the two core features of what constitutes or what characterizes LBPPA, um, um, those are uh, word finding difficulty, as well as difficulty in repeating longer phrases and sentences. And a lot of neurologists, medical professionals would refer to this as auditory verbal working memory. I think uh, speech and language therapists like to call this the phonological loop problem, where you have a phonological store, which is uh, your ability to hold the words that you hear and you have the articular, uh, articulatory process, which helps you repeat those words back in this loop fashion. And um, I think we all can agree that many uh, specialists as well as researchers all say, oh, it's so imperative for LVPPA to be diagnosed early. But as we may know that there are many challenges to really look for these early signs in LVPPA, especially when the language symptoms are so mild and it's so subtle. And it might take a while for patients and families to really understand that there is a problem with the individual, that uh, language functions are perhaps changing. Or I think some people even wonder, is this normal aging? Or mm. is this a pathologically driven language change? And I think some patients might really struggle in distinguishing between those two. And based on my experience as well, a lot of the patients um, actually come to us for second or third opinion because previous uh, doctors or medical staff had said, oh, you know, it might be due to anxiety or depression. So I think there is this problem. While it's so important to detect early signs and know what these early signs are, but there are also challenges in getting that early diagnosis as well. Mm -hmm. I was just reading a paper today, actually, uh, from an Australian paper by a speech therapy academic speech pathology academic I should say um, and she, it's about quality of life so it's by Leanne Ruggeray and she was saying that upwards of 20% of people are first diagnosed with anxiety before they're diagnosed with a type of PPA and I, I mean obviously we all know that happens commonly but to see that mm -hmm. those those data is it's quite incredible and um, I mean the, before we move on a little bit I wondered what's your feeling Shaz around the um, auditory kind of perceptual skills this um, question mark that's kind of arisen even more recently in the research literature that maybe people with PPA have difficulties in perceiving the difference between phonemes so mm -hmm. between sounds so like so phonemes for the non-speech and language therapy folk are, are sounds like p and b. For example, it's thought that people with logopenic variant may have difficulties understanding, um, I don't know, the word pen and ben. And this could also be associated with their output errors mm -hmm. um, when they're mixing up the kind of those sounds as well. And so, yeah. you know, it's common for a person to a very, uh, this is a bit of a simplistic example, but people often say, oh, I, I mix up sounds. So people say, rather than saying apple, they say papple. Mm -hmm. um, what, what would you, you, you say about those receptive issues? 
Yeah, um, that's a really interesting point. And to be honest, I don't know if I've given a lot of thought to that yet. So okay. I'm not sure if my response will be accurate. Um, but I think that there is importance in like the place and um, mm. manner of articulation. And especially in my training, I think in the US in general, perhaps across the globe as well, uh, a lot of speech therapists and pathologists get so much extensive training on maybe the phonological processes and the and the error patterns of children. And um, I think if we think about that, it could be really transferable to understanding LVPPA better as well, because if we think mm. about the puh versus ba and thinking about the place of articulation, how that's similar. And ultimately, if we're, uh, that could really transfer to this phonological loop process as well, if it's the same manner or the same place and the way it affects how you hear the words versus how, and how that transfers to how you articulate it. Um, mm. I, I find that fascinating and yeah. I would love to think more about that. Yeah, me too. I think patients, when I speak to people in my clinical life, they also find it fascinating that they can be diagnosed with this thing we don't actually know that much about. And when I often try and explain it to them, you know, explaining it is very tricky as we're discussing already. Um, so, and I also find that for people living th with this, it's not only language, is it? It's also other thinking skills that are affected. Um, so, Sid, would you like to elaborate a little bit on those? Yeah, so um, I think one of the uh, patterns um, that we've seen in the literature of late is that because LVPPA has been so heavily conceptualized within the PPA field and within the language mm. field, that initially there were very few investigations to try to understand whether these patients also show other difficulties to non-linguistic uh, um, functions. Um, I think of late in the last about five to 10 years, there's been a lot of work on difficulties on um, non-linguistic aspects of uh, cognition. Um, and in particular, this has to do with two avenues of uh, research. One is, are these difficulties uh, tied closely to language in the first place? So essentially, do does, does a person with LVPP have difficulty on uh, doing any aspect of uh, cognition as long as there's language involved or as long as language is central to that, to that function? Um, and second is if this is just a, a result of advancing disease severity. So um, with the first question, I think initially there were some descriptions of uh, LVPPA patients showing difficulties with memory, uh, planning, their ability to multitask, do two things, um, understand something and translate it and try to you know, use their working memory to do other uh, uh, activities. But it was fairly clear that, um, you know, maybe that a lot of these difficulties actually arise from the fact that they already have language difficulties and they might not be able to comprehend and translate uh, instructions in their mind as easily. But there's been some new work showing that a lot of these uh, individuals actually show difficulties even on nonverbal aspects of cognition. So uh, spatial functions, visual spatial functions, um, uh, we have done some work where we've been looking at nonverbal episodic memories. So looking at your ability to remember nonverbal content from the past. And actually uh, we found that um, uh, LVPPA, individuals with LVPPA are actually uh, quite, they, they do show difficulties on this, on this front. So 
that's quite interesting mm. to see that they have these difficulties on these non-verbal fronts as well. Um, another avenue that has been coming up is has been difficulties in calculation, uh, which is quite interesting because these are not described typically in what you see as the reports in, 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 in the classical LBTPA uh, case studies. Um, on, on the second point about disease severity, it's really interesting that you mentioned uh, Leanne's study about, uh, you know, these individuals showing um, these non-linguistic aspects of behavioral cognitive changes um, early on. There's actually another paper that came out from an Australian team. I don't remember who it was from. Margaret Yes, that's Margaret Positive. I used to work with her clinically as a speech therapist. We worked. That's such was, a good paper. Oh, she's such a good researcher and clinician. She was the person who got me into PPA. Actually, yeah, it is. It's a lovely paper about these yes. spousal experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so insightful. It, 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 oh. I mean, for for our readers who don't, or for the listeners rather, uh, who are familiar with this paper, this paper actually found that spouses of uh, PPA patients and especially LVPPA patients uh, find that uh, their partners seem to show difficulties with um, social withdrawal, memory, um, apathy, and 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 these functions almost one to three years before. Uh, the frank uh, language impairment and language difficulties set in. So there are these changes that are happening in parallel, um, but I think there hasn't been enough focus on um, on those those particular changes. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have a paper that is currently under review where we found um, LVPPA patients showing remote memory impairment, um, you know, and, and that this is something that is typically not expected of the PPA syndrome or even LVPPA as such. And um, even when you statistically control for the overall level of language impairment and disease severity, this impairment seems to be pervasive um, and extends up to their childhood and teenage memories. Um, so it says that there's a lot more happening in the syndrome on the side that we really need to understand and investigate. Um, and I think one of this, this kind of leads onto the question, uh, which I think is now becoming, I, I think it's a topic of contention in the literature, whether uh, the description or the term LVPPA, logopenic variant PPA, um, is different from logopenic progressive aphasia where uh, logopenic progressive aphasia, some people tend to um, prefer the term logopenic progressive aphasia to refer to the syndrome of LDPPA plus these other language, other non-linguistic cognitive mm -hmm. difficulties, whereas mm -hmm. the, the term LVPPA should maybe only be restricted to a, an individual who is showing a purely language um, problems. So I, I, mm. do you have anything to add on to this? I know this is becoming quite a, uh, there was a paper actually by Mesalam uh, that came out in neurology about five days ago, where they mm. investigate um, memory impairments in PPA patients with Alzheimer's pathology. So it's not specified if it's yeah. LVPPA specifically, yeah. they have some PNFA and semantic dementia patients, okay. but there they have an entire section discuss it, saying that uh, they would they prefer using the term logopenic progressive aphasia for patients who show the logopenic language symptoms plus these other non-linguistic difficulties whereas the term LVPPA should maybe be reserved only for the patients who show just a pure language uh, profile. Mm. I mean I think we're probably we probably have a bit of work to do anyway with all the terminology. When I kind of started working 
particularly with people with PPA, the terminology was even more heterogeneous. You know, yeah. I talked to people and they didn't know what they, I mean, it still happens now. People don't know what they've been diagnosed with. And then we're going to the research literature. And in the past, you know, I'd speak to my colleague researcher or speech therapist at another organization and they'd be using completely different terminology. So I think that that paper that um, Shaz was highlighting by Gorno Tempini in 2011 was the first step to um, giving some kind of consensus, but I'm sure that this is going to be refined and refined. And, you know, we've got so much to learn from people, haven't we? You know, you, you were talking about Margaret Posivon's work, and that was all from interviewing spouses. And I, yeah. there's um, some work going on at, on at the research, um, sorry, at the Rare Dementia Support in at the Dementia Research Centre at UCL. And um, we that's led by Dr. Chris Hardy, where he's doing surveys with people and their families and understanding the stages. And what's coming out there is exactly what you're saying, Sid, that there's so much more, you know, before the diagnosis is given. And even as people progress, that we aren't actually getting to quite yet in the research literature. So um, as we, we've kind of talked a bit about what logopenic variant PPA is, I think we're coming to the good stuff, which is we want to know about your research. But before we talk about that, I think it would be remiss if we didn't touch on what the available interventions are that are helpful for people with um, logopenic variant PPA. And I'm going to direct this at Shaz, but I might chip in, I'm afraid. Oh, absolutely. This, <laughs> this is where my research focus is in particular. Absolutely. Chip in anytime. Thanks. <laughs> I think the topic of treatment and intervention in PPA is especially important because oftentimes people who are diagnosed with dementia are sent home with a diagnosis. Yeah. And the understanding is, okay, I have a neurodegenerative disease. There is no cure for this. So I don't know where to go from here. And I think that's so detrimental in so many ways. And it affects the quality of life of the individual, not only the patient, but also the family and the support groups and the systems around them. And so when we think about LVPPA, I think it's actually really great because LVPPA is mostly caused by Alzheimer's disease pathology, like we talked about. And there's actually a lot of treatment available that people are probably not aware of. And these include pharmacological treatment um, for Alzheimer's disease that can really help mitigate the cognitive decline. There's also clinical trials uh, that people might be eligible for. And I think there are other forms of treatment as well, like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. I think there's a lot of research recently that are underway to investigate the effects of repetitive TMS and uh, sometimes coupled with uh, interventions like naming treatment as well in a speech therapy setting. So coupled with those, I think there are many treatments available. Mm -hmm. But I think that for because I'm coming from a clinical background, I um, often highlight the non-pharmacological treatment options uh, that can really be helpful in managing symptoms and maximizing the quality of life in PPA, uh, such as speech and language therapy. There are support groups, there are social work services, music therapy, um, even individual and couples counseling. I think a lot of times when a patient's, uh, patient is newly diagnosed, the spouse as well as uh, learning uh, new ways to better communicate with uh, their loved ones. So I think counseling can be really uh, helpful as well as community events. Um, and just 
To make one point about speech and language therapy, I think it's helpful to know that unlike speech therapy that is targeted for aphasia due to a stroke or traumatic brain injury, where the goal might be to regain the patient's lost language abilities. So this is what we would call an impairment-focused treatment approach. In PPA, the goal is actually to really enhance the person's functional communication and to use all available resources, whether that's nonverbal communication or verbal communication, uh, and uh, with uh, assistive technology as well. I think there is quite a lot of resource um, and they can all be used together to really work on the not only the weaknesses, but maintain the strengths of the individual and to compensate for the weaknesses that the patients are experiencing. Uh, well, yeah, and to add to that a little bit, in terms of speech and language therapy, this is part of the press. Uh, there's there's um, about 16 clinical academic speech and language therapists across the UK, Australia, Canada, and America, including people like Margaret Posebon and um, Jade Cartwright, Leanne Ruggero, Maya Henry, um, Regina Jockel. I'm just listing off speech and language therapy academics here. <laughs> um, but we've all got together and we've done a piece of work to identify a, a, some best practice. We've, we've done a piece of consensus work around interventions for speech therapists to deliver with, to people with PPA. So we'll be looking at, um, in fact, we, we've spoken to... Adam and we're hoping to do a podcast on it later this year just really focusing in and honing in on those non-pharmacological interventions because I think the research evidence there is actually also coming on leaps and bounds and um, you know there are more and more interventions that are available that actually target a person's ability to participate in conversations and um identify strategies to maintain the flow of conversation for both them and their partner equally interventions that may aim to maintain vocabulary and scripts relevant to functional uh, interactions and um, and uh, conversation and uh, communication and then of course there's um, work under development you know around you know there's so many more potential interventions. I've, I keep coming back around to what you and I were discussing about auditory perceptual work um, shares. And I think, you know, there's lots more opportunities to expand that stuff. So this is the bit I've been hanging out for. And um, I want to hear lots more about the research you're both doing um, to advance our understanding of log logopenic variant PPA. So maybe Siddharth, do you want to go first? I'd really like to hear about the work. Yeah, so um, I, a lot of my past research has been focused on understanding these non-linguistic aspects of um, LVPPA. So I have focused a lot on memory um, in the past. I have um, some data that I've collected back during my time in Sydney that I'm starting to, I should, well, I should be starting to write it off now. Um, but that's actually looking at uh, navigation difficulties in LVPPA patients. So we put them through a virtual supermarket um, and they had to navigate mm. the supermarket uh, yeah. from this, uh, you know, or, or um, you'd have a shopping cart and the shopping cart would kind of go around the supermarket and stop at a certain place. And then um, all they had to do is just point to which direction they started from with their hands. So, you know, did you start from back there? Did you start from over here? And one of the things that we find is that um, LVPPA 
individuals who have LVVPR actually um, show a lot of difficulty in um, egocentric or first person um, uh, pointing out uh, to where they started from. So they do have some navigation difficulties. Of course, I haven't analyzed uh, the data fully. This is just my preliminary, just when I was having a look at what the, what the patterns look like. Um, and so that, that is um, another avenue that seems to be advancing our understanding of this syndrome. Um, I have some work that I'm planning on starting out where I'm trying to look at how the, the difficulties that people with LVPPA show, how they line up with the other clinical variants of Alzheimer's disease. So essentially trying to position all of these clinical variants of Alzheimer's disease um, on a sort of a spectrum of difficulties. And therefore we're able to understand how does one syndrome, for example, LVPPA, how does one individual evolve to show difficulties from a different clinical variant of Alzheimer's disease? And so this will allow us to give, to have a unified understanding of uh, of these um, heterogeneous symptoms that these individuals show. And are you including posterior cortical atrophy in that? I kind of find sometimes when I meet people clinically, I end up providing similar interventions, yet there's hardly any research on PCA, um, so posterior cortical atrophy and what interventions are appropriate. So yeah, do you include PCA? Yeah, so then the idea is to include uh, posterior cortical atrophy, uh, typical Alzheimer's disease, the logopenic variant of PPA, yeah. and all other clinical variants of Alzheimer's disease. And because you're right, Anna, because there has been some work showing that the the language profile of a PCA seems to evolve into one that looks like LVPPA. Yeah. Um, so it's, we just wonder whether um, LVPPA patients also progress to show the same visual spatial difficulties that posterior cortical atrophy patients show. I know mm. there has been some work that has happened on that front, but I don't know if mm. there's more work that needs to be done, which does in more detail, uh, but it would be really interesting to explore that um, avenue. So some of the work that I'm proposing to do with my postdoc actually looks at the, all of these syndromes that are on, on a sort of a uh, spectrum of, of cognitive difficulties so that mm. we, we can achieve um, uh, a comprehensive understanding of why some individuals seem to progress on to show symptoms of uh, postgeographical atrophy, whereas others might show symptoms more resembling typical Alzheimer's disease and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Thank you, Siddharth. That's so exciting. And, and I think it will have direct clinical relevance as well. Thank you. What about you, Shaz? Yeah. What have you been up to? So if I'm being completely honest, I moved here as well during the pandemic. So I had... Oh. <laughs> I had high hopes and dreams for our PhD project, but <laughs> recruiting patients and interacting with patients might take a while. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be as flexible as I can and perhaps working with existing data for now, but I'm happy to share the general idea for the PhD that I'm envisioning uh, during my tenure here. And um, just going back to some of the points that we were talking about uh, when I was at the MGHFPD unit, one of the things that was really unfortunate was that when patients, LVPPA patients come into clinic for the first time, a lot of them unfortunately had years of um, mm. you know, decline already happening. So by the time they're being diagnosed with LVPPA, it's not so clean. And as uh, Sid was mentioning earlier, it's a very heterogeneous um, 
syndrome. And there is a spectrum of not only linguistic or language-based uh, symptoms, but other cognitive deficit, deficits like executive functioning, for instance. So I really want to better characterize the clinical features as well as the neuropsychological profile of LVPPA, because I think one of the gaps in the literature is the trajectory of decline in LVPPA. Mm. If we assume that it starts with a purely linguistic language-based word finding and this phonological deficit, what happens in this trajectory of decline? And I think we can all agree that maybe that's something that we're in a way trying to investigate as well. And a particular area of interest to me uh, in the past as well as in the present is semantic cognition. And when we think about semantic cognition, uh, recently there has been a lot of research in understanding the framework of controlled semantic cognition. Um, that there constitu it's constituted with not only our conceptual knowledge or our semantic memory for words, objects, factual information about the world, but also the control aspect, which lets us flexibly access and manipulate meaningful information for a specific task or a specific context. So I, I think a canonical example is if we look at a piano, we recognize what a piano is because we, we have semantic memory or cons, uh, the cons conceptualization of what it is. But me playing the piano um, might require access to, you know, knowing the notes, the keys, how I position my fingers, my posture, mm. the ability to read music, for instance. Mm. This situation might be very different and might require very different control from moving the piano, the keys, the notes, the musical um, components of it is not as important because what I need to know is that it's very heavy. I per perhaps can't move it by myself and I'm gonna need help from other people. So this control aspect is so important. I think when we think about the framework of semantic cognition and it really hasn't been investigated in logopenic PPA, even though there are reports that semantic control like or perhaps with executive functioning deficits occur across this rather vast spectrum of the syndrome. So my hope is that, I mean, even though it could be small, but I think it could make a small but meaningful contribution to our greater understanding of what LVPPA is. And in doing so, we can under think more specifically about what types of interventions, mm. whether it's speech therapy, is appropriate for mm -hmm. LVPPA patients. And also thinking about the disease severity as well what is mm -hmm. most effective when it's purely language-based in the beginning mm -hmm. versus maybe three or four years down the line, we see some of these semantic deficits starting to occur. Then the approaches to intervention will of course change. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm envisioning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I mean, you've hit on so many things that, and I was just thinking in one of a study I've done, one of the biggest barriers to delivering interventions for speech and language therapists was the fact that people would referred in clinical settings so far along their disease journey yeah. that and I uh, you know I see that happen a lot that that the the kind of there's almost a barrier as uh, in terms of accessing anything until you have a diagnosis and then and then it's too late to often to to access lots of things um and then the other thing you were describing about you know this um, ability to participate in, in, you know, this semantic knowledge and how valuable that is yeah. um, uh, to 
participating in daily life. And it reminds me again, I think, it, you know, we've talked a lot today about speech therapy, but that's perhaps we're a bit biased here two to one <laughs> speech therapist and then but then there are and we've talked about things like tms and and pharmacy medications but there's other things that for example occupational therapists offer and i'm often um trying to liaise with occupational therapists in the clinical setting to try and help them um understand the language components so and so that we can work together to provide you know that that functional support so people can can manage in their home settings for longer so just as we come to the finish of our podcast I wanted to highlight that the work in this field of dementia has a direct impact on the lived experience of people with logopenic variant PPA as we've been saying throughout today's discussions as it influences the development of new and novel interventions and as a speech and language therapist working clinically this is what people often tell me they're most concerned about they want to know that research will help themselves and others into the future so thank you so much both of you Shaz and Siddharth for sharing your work today and um, I wondered if there was anything else we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to mention no and perhaps we can um, if you'd like to share your Twitter handles so people know where to find you that would be really helpful too so maybe Shaz would you like to start Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me today. My Twitter handle is at Henderson, H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, Shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M. And uh, as a PhD student, I also consider myself an early career researcher. So if anyone is interested in chatting or have any questions, I'm more than happy to respond via Twitter. Super. Thank you. And Sida. Yes, thanks again for having me. This was so much fun. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Sid Ramanan, so S-I-D-R-A-M-A-N-A-N. Um, and just like Shaz said, you know, I've just uh, transitioned into a postdoc. So if anyone also has questions about moving transcontinentally, starting a postdoc during the pandemic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'd be happy to chat about it, uh, along with chatting about some of the work that I've been up to. That's a great idea. That sounds like a, another podcast unto itself, starting a PhD during a pandemic. So thank you for that. We have profiles on today's panellists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts. If you would like to ask any follow-up questions and didn't catch what Sid and Shaz just said. So finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean and SoundCloud and all the other places that you find podcasts. Thank you very much. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.